0: There are words that we don't like to hear. Let's consider some of the words that we, we dread hearing. Words like, I hate you. Words like, I have some bad news. Words like, I want a divorce. Words like, there's been an accident there are certain things that we dread hearing. They're not good news. They're bad news. They're things that we do hear though. This morning we're going to hear some of the most dreadful words. No, dare I say, this morning we're going to hear the most dreadful words that anyone could ever hear. The three most dreadful words that anyone could ever hear could ever hear, and they're spoken by none other than Jesus. This morning we're going to continue our study in the gospel, the good news, it comes from the gospel, the good news according to Luke, and we're going to be in the 13th chapter, so if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Luke 13, where we're continuing to learn from Jesus about what's true, what's not true, who he is, who he isn't. And He speaks these dreadful words, these offensive words. Why would He do this? Of all people, Jesus. I would encourage you with the fact, and to let you know ahead of time, He tells us these awful words as an act of kindness, as an act of grace, as an act of mercy. He tells us these words now in the theoretical so that we never, ever have to hear them in the future, in the personal. In other words, so that you never hear these words from Jesus himself, he tells us ahead of time, he gives us a preview, graciously, kindly, of what some will hear. No doubt these words would have been offensive to the original audience. No doubt they're going to be offensive to us and i'm not um relishing and offending you uh today of all days but i am a christian pastor called to proclaim christ's word and in the end the intent is good in the in, in the end it is meant to be in the gospel account because it's good to know reality before it's too late and so in that sense i make no apologies Um, if need be, if you need to be offended in the short run, how much better would it be to be offended in the short run than to be offended later when it's too late? And so let's hear from Jesus this morning, Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 30. We won't have an outline this morning. It would only get in the way. Uh, We're going to hear three dreadful words from Jesus that are meant to help us, maybe offend us so that we don't have to be offended Later. And by the way, I know there'll be objections to this. And while we won't do an open forum in the here and now, uh, I would welcome them later. And at the end of our study of Luke 13 today, I will at least engage a couple of the objections. It's my way of trying to get you to hang in there. Um, Even objections I've heard this week um, and overheard. So we start with the setting in Luke 13 verse 20 where it says, he went on his way, Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And Dr. Luke is good about this. He describes what's going on, where Jesus is, and he's, he's making the rounds, so to speak, teaching, doing miraculous things, demonstrating that he really is the promised Messiah, King, Deliverer, Christ. He, he's showing uh, before all to see in real time, in real space, historically, that he really matches. He really is the one. He really is the one who came to save his people from their sins. But Luke also reminds us that as he's doing these things, he is on point, if you will. He's headed toward Jerusalem. Because he is headed toward Calvary. Because he did come to do that great work and that plays into all of this as we read on so the general setting he's highways and byways teaching the people the jewish people around and about jerusalem and then comes a question from somebody who's really been paying attention verse 23 says and someone said to him lord will those who are saved be few what a question Will will those who are saved be few? And and he's been talking about uh, himself being the king and his kingdom. And you might want to notice in your Bible, there there he uses "saved" and "kingdom" uh, interchangeably. In our verse, verse twenty-three, it's saved. Will few be saved? In verse twenty-nine, it talks about entrance into the kingdom. He's talking about the same reality. Uh, Shorthand for us, oftentimes we say, "Go to heaven." Will, will those who enter in, into your forever lasting, eternal kingdom in the presence of God, uh, will, will they be few? Will those who've been spared the, the judgment of God, um, the consequences for sin, will, will those who are saved be few? Uh, this guy's been paying attention, making observations. After all, Jesus just got done, the record shows, talking about His kingdom being small, at least at first? Well, that, that's contrary to what we were thinking, Jesus. We, we, we were thinking universal scope. We were thinking everybody, at least all, all of us, all of us Jews. And, and then you're talking about smallness? Should, should we conclude, Jesus, um, I'm, I'm tracking with you here, that, that there will be few people saved? We also know from extra-biblical sources paralleling this time that the most common understanding amongst the Jewish people would be if if you're connected to Abraham, you're in. You, You are guaranteed part. If your last name is Davidson, I'm being a little facetious, you're you're in. You are saved because of your connection to the community, because of your connection to the historic figure, and 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 so that we're all in. And you see where this might be practical for us too in twenty-first century relativistic, universalistic-minded, sentimental-minded America. Jesus, are you suggesting that few will be saved? That's it. that's relevant to us. Relevant where the one and only requirement for being saved, the one and only requirement for gaining entrance into God's kingdom is what? Having a funeral. Dying. Because everyone who dies, the common sentiment in our culture, you see how relevant this is and you see how offensive this could be, we know they're in a better place. Because after all, people who die are in a better place. We know they're not suffering anymore because after all, when you die, you're not suffering anymore. I have a question for you, Jesus, in the 21st century. My question is the same as this person's. Your your question could be the same as this person's. I'm reading the Bible. Um, I'm reading pop culture and listening. And I'm saying, Jesus, are are, are you saying contrary to what I've been taught to believe by Oprah? Are are you suggesting that, that maybe not everybody's in? Really? But you see, this is why, again... I'm daring to go where people dare not go. But as you came in this morning, it did say Omaha Bible Church. So we believe the Bible is true. We're a church, a Christian church, and we really do want to give Jesus the microphone, so to speak. And so I'm eager. I hope you're eager to say, what's he going to say? What's he going to say? Not what your own personal Jesus would say, but I wonder what this Jesus is going to say. No offense to Johnny Cash or Depeche Mode. What's he going to say? How interesting. Um, Let me also remind you, how practical. Because this is where we live. This is how we think. This has to do with what will last forever. Talk about practical. Let's move on. Jesus' response. It's not a yes or no response we're going to see. Oh, by the way, if you want the yes or no response, if you want the, if you want the um, non-prime time response, if you want the after hours when everybody's gone to bed, full throttle response, I mean, this is the nice response, okay? If you, if you want the, the not so nice response, it's the same response, but he just says yes or no. You can read Matthew 7, where Jesus addressed this on a different account. And it's the full throttle. Fasten your seatbelts, tray tables up, right? We may experience turbulence uh, this afternoon. If this isn't enough for you, but I'm just so nice, I'm trying to be nice with doing Luke. You should hear what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Surprisingly, he doesn't say yes or no. In verse 23, let's keep reading. And he said to them, strive, so he doesn't say yes or no, he calls them to action with athletic imagery, very vivid, strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive to enter through the narrow door. What's amazing is Jesus doesn't just leave us, he cares so much, he doesn't allow us or them to just leave it to the ethereal intellectual questioning, you can have it on the bookshelf, yes or no. He's answering, but he's saying, this matters to you personally. It's not just something you can think about and philosophize about at the coffee shop or the pub or the library or across the cubicle. I want you to know there is an answer, but I want you to know you need to do something. And while I'm not Jesus, I would want to echo his words to you. Yes, let's grapple with those kinds of questions that we dare not even talk about. Let's grapple with them and hear Jesus say, and you need to do something. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't suggest with his athletic, intense imagery that it's automatic. Notice Jesus doesn't suggest that as long as you're connected to the community somehow and you have the right connections and the right last name and the right right, religious tradition, everything's fine. Notice Jesus doesn't say, the answer to the question is, no, I'm not saying that. You should just do nothing. He doesn't do that. Do nothing because you're in. Don't you know everybody's in? Haven't you watched primetime television? He doesn't do that. It's a corrective. It's a corrective to them and their culture. It's a corrective to us and our culture. That's why it stings. And we haven't even gotten to those three tough words yet. What an interesting thing. Jesus doesn't suggest that their thinking is all wrong. How many of us would want to say, as we're reared and, 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 and discipled by pop culture, say, that guy shouldn't even be asking that question. What a dummy. Don't you know that everybody who dies is in a better place? And Jesus, conversely, says, You better act. Huh. And again, once again, you could say, Man, this is like the mean Jesus. Countercultural. Or you could say, He's telling them the truth so that they wouldn't be deceived anymore. What a gracious Savior. Now, in verse 25, which we're not to yet, He's even going to link this to time sensitivity. He describes it as a narrow door, but in light of verse 25, it's a narrow door that's going to close. Thus, the strive, do something. Strive to enter the narrow door. Now, maybe some of you who are more familiar with the Bible could help some of the rest of us in answering this question, and that's, what's Jesus mean by door? Well, if you've read the Bible very much at all, you, you know the imagery, you know the language. Uh, even if you haven't read the Bible very much, you know the entrance. Oh, and then you read in John's account, John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the door. I'm the entrance. I'm the way is what he's saying. I think the same idea is here, and I'm in great company in saying, Jesus is talking about himself. He's been showing them who he is. You can't just be passive, he's calling them to strive to enter the narrow door and he's talking about coming to faith in him. In other words, believe in me, in other words, trust in me, in other words, personally trust in me. It's not passive, it doesn't happen by by osmosis. As my dad used to say to me, how do you think your homework is going to get done by osmosis? Just by putting your head on the books? You've got to do something. It's a call to faith. It's a call to trust. It's a call to dependence. Contrary to popular opinion, it doesn't just happen by osmosis. And we should hear this. How do I gain entrance into the foreverlasting kingdom? How do I? How How am I saved and spared condemnation? I've got to act, and I got to. I have to trust in Jesus. It's earnest. It's passionate. It's genuine. It's serious. There's intentionality would maybe be a really good word to use. I think it's a really good word because it's the one I wrote down. But there's intentionality. It's personal. Now, more about this later. And let's talk about objections later. But at this point in time, I'm saying, wow. This a serious business. Hope you are too. Hope you are too. Now, he gives greater explanation, which usually means it's going to be more intense. Why the urgency? Why the call? Verse 24 goes on to say, we, we, we have the answer of why with the word for. For many. So strive to enter in through the narrow door. He says, for many. Notice the question at the beginning was, will it be few who make it in? And, He gives an answer about a narrow door, and then he says, Here's why it's such an important issue for people like you and people like me. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Many who think they're kingdom bound won't enter into the kingdom. That's intense. You say, well, that's not what I believe. I'm a Christian pastor. I'm just giving you what Christ says. And he does say, I tell you. Well, that's not what I was told by so-and-so, reverend, brother, bishop, father, so-and-so. Jesus says, I tell you. Gets my attention. Because we're talking about Christianity. We're talking about Christ. Who can better represent Christ than Christ? Wow. Many will strive to enter, but they won't be able. Well, who says they won't be able? Jesus says they won't be able. Maybe they're deceived by religious leaders. They're self-deceived. Notice the contrast with a few and the many. It reminds me of that old spiritual that says, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. Hmm. Unsettling troubling, but I want to remind you how kind and how gracious of Jesus, if this is how it is, to tell us ahead of time. Reminds me of Mark Twain as well. Mark Twain said something along these lines. It's not the unclear stuff in the Bible that troubles me. It's the stuff that is patently clear. This is one of those passages that Twain would have been troubled by. Because it's not one of those passages where you say, well, you know, in Greek it means something different. It's pretty straightforward. So straightforward that an unbelieving Greek scholar, non Christian Greek scholar, could translate it, pay attention to the vocabulary, the grammar, the syntax, and guess what it would mean. Pretty straightforward. Doesn't mean that person would believe it, but pretty straightforward. It's troubling. But I would suggest to you, contrary perhaps to some opinions, it's kind. It's gracious. Because he didn't have to tell us ahead of time and he's telling us ahead of time. Don't be deceived. And I would say that to you too. Don't be deceived. Everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. Now he illustrates this. When once, this is verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, here's our command on the outside. Open to us. Then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. So not altogether different from when you locked your deadbolt last night, end of the day, locking up the house, well, probably in a more formidable sense in in a first century Middle Eastern world, you know, time to button down the hatches. Time to lock things down. Done for the night. Safe. Now, if somebody does come, hello, hello, let us in the common response is going to be through the peephole or whatever it is. Who is it? And Jesus says about these people, I don't know where you've come from. On another occasion, he says, I don't know you. You're not a relative. We don't have a relationship. I don't know who you are. Why would I let you in after hours? The door's shut for the night. He uses that imagery. Huh. The idea is, I don't have a relationship with you. You say, Lord, and then you demand, let us in. Well, why, would I, why would I do that? We, we don't have a relationship. In context, we don't have the relationship that starts with you embracing me as the entrance, as the door. No relationship. That's how a relationship is established. You're strangers. Verse 26 then says, Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. Perhaps a good way to summarize that would be, We're Israelites. We're part of the right community. We're part of the right group. We, we, our last name is Davidson. Or Abrahamson or something like that. You get the idea. We, we do belong. Jesus, remember, you, you came to my town. We were there. We saw it. We witnessed. See, the difference is, though, he's saying, I don't know who you are. I don't know where you've come from. But there's, there's not a personal relationship. You, you, didn't, you didn't strive to enter. You, you didn't embrace me by faith. You didn't trust in me. And whether we like it or not, and whether it offends our sentiments or not, Jesus is teaching that there comes a time when the door is shut he starts by calling it a narrow door because it's him and there comes a time when the door is shut you can choose to argue with that or you can choose to say this is what Jesus says this is how it is I'm not God and I don't create the rules I need to repent of playing God wow I don't here's what we're meant to do here's what we're meant to do and here's why it's so gracious. We're meant to read that and go, I don't want to be in that position. That's right. You don't. I don't want to either. And then verse 27. But he will say, I tell you, this is the master of the house, the one who's in charge of his house. It's his house. He can do whatever he wants to. It's his house. I tell you, I do not know where you came from. Stranger. Stranger. And here, here are three words that I hope and pray, and I mean that not tongue-in-cheek, but in earnestness, that you never, ever, ever, ever hear outside of here. But Jesus is going to say to the many, depart from me. And you heard it here today at Omaha Bible Church at 8 till noon Central Time. Graciously, kindly, mercifully, Jesus will say to many, not few, depart from me. I don't want you to hear that ever outside of the theoretical, motivational. I hope you never, ever, ever, ever hear that from Jesus himself. Right? That's what we long for, for our friends and for our family. I don't ever want you to hear those awful, dreadful, terrible words that are worse than any any other words. But the reality is, many are going to hear it. Which is why we want to be evangelists and evangelistas. <laughs> it's why, why we want to proclaim Christ. We want to tell people the truth about Christ. And we want to say with urgency, strive to enter through the narrow door. He's the door. Believe in Him. Because the narrow door is going to close someday. And then it will be too late. What a compassionate Jesus to tell this ahead of time. How very, very, very loving of Him. Verse 28 then says, In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Common hell terminology in other texts. Anger, pain, frustration, bitterness. Notice why. When you see Abraham... Apparently from that position, you can, you can see those who are in the kingdom. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves, notice how personal it is, that's what we don't want. We don't want this to be personal for us. When you yourselves are cast out. Even think of the irony going on. They would have said, we're the sons and daughters of Abraham. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that's where we get our authority. The prophets, that's where we get our authority. And what has Jesus been doing all along? Showing how each of those, all of those point to Him and in effect call out, believe in Christ. Each of them, all of them, separate and together are saying, if you will, strive to enter through the door. Jesus, and, and and they've been saying that's where we believe whatever they say, and Jesus is saying, if you did, you'd trust in me, and so when you're suffering and cast out, you'll see them, and they will serve as a testimony against you. My friends, this is awful. By God's grace, please don't be in a position where you hear these words. The contrast is between the few and the many, and the many are going to hear the words. All joking aside, don't be that guy. Verse 29 says, And people will come from east and west, and from north and south. What do you think he's getting at there? Gentiles. Talk about a paradigm rocker. Not that this wasn't in the Old Testament. Not that this wasn't already talked about. It was talked about, but we've, we've moved so far away from where the Bible is when you've got Jesus on earth that so many people were thinking, it's only the Jews, and as long as you're just associated with us, everything's fine, and Jesus is... is He could have been quoting chapter and verse, he doesn't. But he says, let me tell you how it's really going to be. People are going to come from the north, people are going to come from the south, people are going to come from the east, people are going to come from the west, they're going to come from the outside. Because once again, the issue is, not if your last name is Jacobson, for effect. The issue is, have you embraced me as the door? And so we've got Gentiles, which would be non-Jews, believing in Jesus. Sheep who are not of this flock. Yes, there are Jews who believe, but there are non-Jews who believe. So isn't it interesting how you've got this this narrow road, one way, narrowness, and you've got this broadness emphasis. God is both. God is narrow and God is broad. You've got this inclusive emphasis. East, west, north, south. Further offending certain sensibilities. Sometimes, well, we we should move on, go to the next part. And recline at table in the kingdom of God. How could this be? How could this possibly be? Because we're the good people, the Jews, and the people who are outside are the bad people, the Gentiles fundamental error right that we all commit in one way or another actually we need the one and only good one who's got his face set toward calvary to atone for our bad that's how there can be all these different kinds of people what brings any of them in would be they've striven if you will to enter through the narrow door through him even gentile outsiders Then he says in verse 30, and behold, some are last who will be first. And some are first who will be last. And that statement could be used in different ways as a common saying. It seems here to be talking about Gentile outsiders and insider Jews. So we come back to Jesus' call to action. It's really straightforward. Given reality, and let's not be in denial anymore. Given reality, the greatest thing is strive to enter through the narrow door. Don't be passive. You yourself trust in Christ. You yourself believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Yeah, but I have family members who are Christians. You yourself trust in Christ. Yeah, but I... You yourself trust in Christ. You strive, he says. Embrace Christ with genuineness, with authenticity, with with from the heartness, if you will, is what he's saying. Believe in me is what he's saying. Now, let's talk about a couple of objections and maybe just one final application. Now, let's do the application first. So here we are. We're not in first century Palestine. We're not living on the outskirts around Jerusalem. We ourselves have not actually physically, historically seen Jesus do these things. So how does it apply to us? Well, we still have our sin and we still need to be saved and there's still a coming kingdom that will last forever that we need to get in. And so in that sense, it's the same. Oh, it's the same in another sense because we think passively perhaps just because I'm an American or I go to Omaha Bible Church or my parents go to Omaha Bible Church or my grandparents were, were pastors or you know, who knows, something like that. We think somehow passive. My spouse is a Christian. I know the stories. I know about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I know about the flannel graphs and Daniel. And it's all Passive. I'm going to have a funeral someday. And when you die, you don't suffer anymore. In that sense, we're in the same kind of boat. Parents aren't going to get you in. Exposure isn't going to get you in. None of these things are going to get you in. Jesus says, you yourself act. It's a call to faith. It's a call to believe. It's a call to trust. So by God's grace, I'm trying to offend you if need be on the way to having it be the best day of your life. So offended having gone to church most of my whole life, my whole life, and then to be in college and to have someone have the audacity to question the sincerity of my Christianity. How dare you thank you very much to question my faith. My faith, Experience. It's personal. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that something like this happened. So that I can think in terms of it calls for you to believe. Not just to be passively associated. So a very offensive day. On my way to a really great day. And if that's what it takes here this morning, I want it to be a really offensive day. On the way, not just for offense sake, but on the way to a great day. Jesus is so kind for telling us ahead of time. Now, a couple of objections and then we'll wrap things up. A couple of objections. I heard at least one of these this week. Um, Isn't this narrow-minded? Isn't this narrow-minded? Well, yes. Yes. Didn't you see the word narrow was used? I mean, think what a shocker that would be to lots of pop culture. Jesus describes the way to get into heaven as narrow. Who does he think he is? Jesus or something? I mean, just so you know, you you, you are such a foreigner. When you're thinking in these terms. To the by and large culture around you. Talk about strangers and aliens. Talk about needing to be a good missionary. And just even helping people understand what the Bible actually says. Because most people don't know. Because to most people Jesus would never ever ever even utter the word narrow. Other than just to describe people who think Jesus is the only way. And so... Just remember, Jesus was narrow. Jesus was the most narrow-minded man who ever walked the face of the earth. Everything he said was right and everything else was wrong. (laughs) Hello? I think he had a Messiah complex. (laughs) Right? I mean, we forget who he is. Not for narrow-mindedness' sake, but he's God. He's the truth incarnate. And therefore, everything that he says is patently, absolutely, verifiably true. And so, yes, it's narrow-minded. Now, for me to say this or for you to say this, yeah, we could, we could cross the line and, and, and because we're not perfect. We give the microphone to Jesus and you say, you know what, it is narrow. But given who he is, that would only make sense. If he's not narrow, then he's not who he claimed to be. Newsflash. Now, on the, same, on, on the same track here, this is important that we think through this, and hopefully this is an equipper. Maybe it answers your objection, but it helps some of your friends' objections, perhaps. Here's how I object. I'm exhibit A friend, friend A. But that's not the Jesus I believe in. That, 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 that's what I heard this week. That's not the Jesus I believe in. Hear this. Relativism works with fantasy. I'll follow up in a second. Relativism, this is my Jesus, it's your Jesus, somebody else's Jesus, that's relativism. Relativistic. That works with fantasy, but it doesn't work with history. It doesn't work if Jesus is the real person, the the real historic Jesus who spoke and could be understood and was objectively seen and handled and touched like the gospel accounts say. It doesn't work. It works for the Easter Bunny. Who's the Easter Bunny to you? Well, I could share with you who the Easter Bunny is to me and, and, and we could have a disagreement and we could both be right. So you've got your personal Easter bunny and I've got my personal Easter bunny. Well, because there's no such thing as Easter bunny. Oh, sorry, guys. Um, because there's no such thing as Easter bunny, we, 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 can, we can both be right because it's fantasy. See, see, truth when it comes to fantasy is in the eye of the beholder. This week we had a, a tooth loth in our house. Okay? One of our little ones lost his tooth and he was really happy to have lost his tooth and it's exciting lost his first tooth and and so one night uh, we weren't all home but we were sitting around the dinner table and we were talking about the tooth fairy and so and it got kind of fanciful it was it was it was fun it was interesting and there was an, an argument broke out so to speak about who the tooth fairy is now of course my son's like mom is the tooth fairy you know and so he just ran on everybody's parade break you know throwing down the history card um but it was fun for a while. It was going back and forth. Well, the, the, the Tooth Fairy has these kind of wings. And the Tooth no, the Tooth Fairy is this kind of fanciful person. And there was this kind of good little back and forth about who the Tooth Fairy is. And you know what? When it comes to fantasy, everybody was right. you can make up anything you want to make up about the Tooth Fairy. Because we're talking about Fantasy. The Tooth Fairy Jesus says, Broad is the road and everyone's on it. And everyone, when they die, is in a better place. That's the Tooth Fairy Jesus, the Jesus of fantasy. Maybe he said it like this. But the Tooth Fairy Jesus says, Everyone is in a better place. But that's fantasy, not historically grounded reality. And we need to remember that. Now maybe there's a better way for you to explain this to your friends. Maybe this is the best way. I count many of you as my friends, and so I'm using condescending humor. Hope we're still friends afterward. I mean well. Remember in Christianity, faith is not where you turn your brain off when things are non-historical. It's not how faith is used in Christianity. It's how it's used in our culture. But in Christianity it's used where you trust in something, someone who's real. So real that we have ample truckloads, if you will, of historic corroboration, evidence, eyewitnesses, verifiability. Or trusting in Jesus, the historic person. Maybe one other objection if we have time. Oh. Yeah, we got to do this one. This is just, yeah, we have to do this. Why does it have to be this way? Couldn't there be other ways? Why do we have to say Jesus is the only way? There's other ways to handle this. I'm just going to handle it one particular way that might be helpful. It has to be this way. Has to be this way that Jesus is the only way you will ever enter the kingdom. Has to be this way because of who God is, because of who you are. And because of what God's law says. If, I, if you give me those things, it has to be that faith in Jesus is the one and only way. God is righteous. He has a righteous law. He doesn't compromise. He doesn't say, Oh, I know I said that, but I didn't really mean it, or I'll just change things. No, He's a righteous judge, so He always follows through. He upholds His own good moral law, His own good law. It is moral. And we are told to love Him with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's it. And that's why Buddhism won't work. And that's why Zoroastrianism won't work. And that's why Islam won't work. That's why Jehovah's Witnessism won't work. That's why Mormonism won't work. That's why naturalism won't work. That's why moralistic do-gooderism won't work. You say, why do you say all that? Because only one person, only one person came to fulfill the law. Only one person fulfilled the law. Only one person fulfilled all righteousness. His name is Jesus, and he loved his Father on our behalf with heart, soul, mind, and strength, with absolute perfection and earnestness. He did it. He, he, he fulfilled the law. As it says in Second Corinthians, the just, the righteous one, the law keeper for the unjust, us. The one and only way you could be right with God is if you'd perfectly kept His law, if you perfectly loved Him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you don't, and I don't, and nobody does except for one. And He came as a substitute. So that if we trust in Him, God sees us as if we actually have been in touch with reality, and we've actually treated God like He's God, and we've loved Him with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved our neighbor as ourselves. Awesome! It has to be that Jesus is the only way. Because he's the only one that kept the law. Has to be. And not only that, his face, he's going to Calvary, as we read at the beginning of the passage, he's going to Calvary to atone for, in addition to that, complimenting that, to, to, to satisfy God's wrath against us for all the rebelling and anti-law, uh, all the law-breaking we've been doing. It's awesome. It's a beautiful savior, magnificent savior, who saves to the uttermost, and he has to be the one and only way. Somebody said to me this week, "What about John 3:16? "God so loved the world?" And I said, "Thank you very much for partially quoting my verse. I'll take that and explain it to you. It's not the verse of universalism. It's an awesome verse. It's a great verse. It actually complements the very thing we're talking about. But how, this, how about this? Your friends don't know that. and You've got to help them. God so loved the world. And by the way, it's not this. God so loved the world. Even though I think He loves us a lot and loves us magnificently. John 3.16, the intent is God loved the world in this way. Yes, He loved us greatly because He gave His unique Son. That shows the greatness. But, but God so loved the world. God loved the world like this. The way He chose to. He loved the world like this. That He sent His only begotten. In other words, His unique. Did we hear the word narrow earlier? He sent His unique Son. Not sons he sent his un- how did he choose to do it because it's his prerogative he chose to love the world in this way by sending his unique son and then we go broad again that whosoever so we've got east west north south Jew Gentile that whosoever believes in him trusts in him will not perish but have everlasting life it's amazing it's super broad in the right sense but not in a universalistic sense. It's actually super narrow when it comes to getting in touch with reality because God only has one Son. It's awesome. Now, hopefully, if you've been offended this morning, you're on the right track moving toward need for Christ. And if that's not who you are, I hope you've been further equipped and motivated to be a better missionary, to show love for people around you who, who, when we say words, they don't even know what we're talking about. And so it might mean um, not assuming all the things I've been able to assume here today at a Christian church. Jesus is a great Savior. He saves to the uttermost. He loves us so much to call us to do something because, by the way, that's the only way it will ever, 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 ever lead to your salvation. if You trust in Christ. Only by God's grace. But you must trust in Christ. Father, thank you so much for a great Savior whose name is Jesus. We are grateful that he perfectly and completely kept your law in every way necessary. We're, we're glad that it's good news to people like us. And we are so burdened that there are so many around us who don't understand. They don't even understand well enough to know if they should believe or not believe. So help us. Help us to, to, to winsomely, passionately, thoughtfully, lovingly, boldly, Proclaim Christ, having trusted in Him ourselves. Give us an extraordinary day today as we reflect on the goodness of Christ, even the one who honored His mother perfectly, given the fact that we don't. In Jesus' name, amen.